Welcome to the 10K Collective podcast for six, seven and eight figure Amazon and e-commerce sellers, a part of the amazing FBA family. If you want to scale fast, target a seven figure exit and enjoy the process, then keep listening. Today's episode is sponsored by the new e-commerce podcast, The E-Commerce Leader, co-hosted by myself, Michael Vizi, and Jason Miles, top 1% Shopify store owner and Unimi's highest rated e-commerce instructor. If you're the owner of a thriving e-commerce business, look for The E-Commerce Leader on your favorite podcast app and subscribe today. Ladles and jelly spoons, boys and girls, welcome back to the 10K Collective podcast, the place to be for six, seven and eight figure Amazon sellers, particularly if you're looking to scale. And why would you scale? Well, possibly to sell your business or at least make it sellable. And today's guest is going to talk about some of that stuff from very important perspective. So Ned Hackam is an eight figure e-commerce seller and one of the partners at Umbrella Fund, which is an Amazon management company, but also a company that buys and aggregates Amazon businesses, which is what we're going to talk about in this episode. So Ned, first of a warm welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Michael. Pleasure. I can see you've you got your lovely Black Yeti microphone there, which my wife has as well. So good to see you using a proper microphone. If you're just listening, you'll, you'll hear the warmth and loveliness of that coming through. Where are you coming to us from today? I'm actually, we're located in Dallas, Texas. Lovely. Yeah, just down the road from Austin, Texas, which gets all the glory, doesn't it, with the tech? So I'm sure that you, yeah. you can put one in for Dallas there. So today we're going to talk about the whole business that you're uh, in these days, which, well, part of what you do is uh, purchasing Amazon businesses. And I, I think Umbrella Fund is purchasing at a rate of about a business a month. So it's not crazy fast, but it's not slow either. So it's an interesting pace where you have to kind of consider things. So I'd love to talk with you about the, the whole business of what people can learn if they're trying to build a business to sell to somebody like you. So the first thing is, I know a lot of people come to you and ask, how do I exit my company? So tell me about some of the things that come up in those conversations. So, you know, a lot of people come to us and say, hey, we want to learn, we want to exit our company and like just we're, we're ready to exit. And we go, look, in order for you to prepare to exit a company, you sort of have to kind of start off while you're starting the company or or a few years into it, because there's a lot of things that you want. If Again, you can exit your company at any given point in time, but if you want to truly maximize the value of an exit, you need to start off at least uh, seven, eight months or more than a year in advance. Because when you're working on exiting a company, the entire thing is based on the TTM, right? We're looking at, we're evaluating the last 12 months. We're looking at the growth potential. We're looking at the expenses. You're looking at all the marketing stuff. So it's really, really, really important for the mindset is that even if you're not thinking about exiting a company, you should still structure, design, and work the company as though you're going to exit it because at some point in time, that cro- that thought will cross your mind. Yeah, I like that. I mean, the first thing to say is TTM, by the way, is presumably tra- trailing 12 months, right? Correct. That's a lot. La- uh, yeah, no three-letter acronym uh, abbreviation rule on the podcast because uh, I just think, what is TTM? Ah, I got it. But yes, I really love that. If you, Even if you're not thinking about exiting yet, you should make your business sellable. And I, I want to just say this because I've had a few people in the, the mastermind that I run that are multi-generation family businesses and they're probably not going to be selling to anyone anytime soon but all i would say is even if your grandchildren are going to own the business would you rather pass on a stressful business where you have to work 100 hours a week and it's unstable or would you like to pass on something desirable to own and i think it comes to the same thing right so that can be a real red herring like i'm never going to sell my business still is still great discipline i just want to say that loud and clear because i think otherwise people will turn off at this point mentally and they shouldn't they should keep listening so tell me a bit more then about this you're saying you need to 
start a year in advance. You need to make it sellable, even if you're not thinking about exit. So that implies, okay, what is it you're looking for? Let's flip it on its head. Never mind selling. What about buying? What is it you look for when you're trying to buy a business? So, Michael, if it's okay, I want to touch on one more point on your on your last question. Basically, is the fact that look, you asked like when you're when you're working on a company structure this is the biggest challenge that we see that's that happens all the time sellers sellers that are looking at starting their business when you first start right you don't have the right llc structures you may not have the right quickbooks accounting you may not have the right bank separation you may not have the right formation see those are the kind of things that come back and later haunt you right so the idea is like when you're trying to set this up right you want to do all that stuff the right way you want to make sure taxes are paid for. You want to make sure you have your own corporations and, and QuickBooks. And that's what I'm talking about, right? When it comes to set up your business, even if you're not thinking about a sale, because what will end up happening is someone like us will come look at it and go, where you've got your personal and your, your corporate all mixed up. You haven't paid taxes properly. Your, your documents and your profits don't really show up into your K-1. So those are the kind of things as well. I just wanted to touch up on that point a little bit. But I can I can I can answer the thing, right? What what do we look for when we're looking at buying a business? It's basically science. This is not emotional based. You know, it's it's it comes down to pure math for us when we're looking at this stuff, right? So the way we establish on purchasing a business is we at any given point in time, we've got about eight to ten businesses that we're evaluating for purchase. We won't purchase all the businesses. It has to fall within a particular kind of criteria for someone like us to buy. And, and that also goes for most of the aggregators or any other Amazon business that you're buying. Unless you're buying a one-off business, like you're a doctor and you really just want to buy a business because you've got money, you're going to come with some kind of a criteria, right? And, and that's critical for, for people to understand what that criteria is. See, for us, it's simple. We've got a seven-point criteria that we run on. These are the seven categories that we run on. Now, within each category, there is quite a bit of depth. So Michael, I could talk about the cr- categories, real criteria categories real quick, and then you can ask me, you know, a little bit more detail. Is that okay? That sounds absolutely perfect. Yes. And let, let's get the overview first. So that'll give people a kind of mental checklist. And then let's dive into the bits that seem most important. Yeah. So from a criteria perspective, let me give you guys a quick overview as to what the criteria is going to be all about, right? So there's seven points that we actually look at at the Umbrella Fund in terms of how we evaluate a company and what the evaluation will end up being. Okay. One obviously is a financial strength. That's the most important one. We look at the trailing 12 months. We look to see if the financials are on a positive side, on a negative side. We look at the balance sheets. We'll make sure that there is there any major, you know, debts out there, stuff like that. So finance has to be strong for sure. The second thing we look at is the brand power, right? How powerful is your brand? How many ASINs do you have that you're particularly selling? If your entire revenue model is based on one ASIN, that is extremely scary for us, right? That's like, if Amazon decides to shut you down for any reason, it's, it's one shot and you're done. So, you know, what we like to see is at least your each ASIN should not be more than 10 to 15% uh, of your entire revenue proposition. And honestly, even if it's not for sale, you should you should make sure you diversify because that's just dangerous game for anybody, right? 
So one is financial. The second is brand. The third we look at is from a PPC perspective in terms of marketing, right? We want to see how good your marketing is. We want to evaluate if you're doing a good job. And if you're not, that's perfectly fine. That's more value for us because when we take over an account, we'll clean that up and we'll get to a good level, right? From a PPC standpoint, we, we, we break it down into three different phases for the most part. One is if the ASINs are brand new, we understand they're brand new and that the cost of marketing will be higher. But as you have maturity in ASIN, we want that ASIN to temper off, right? So that's the third thing, which is a marketing that we're looking at. The fourth thing that we look at is lost of sale and inventory math. Okay. This is very important for us because we we need to understand that one, your restocks are done properly, that you don't have stock outages, that you don't have lost sales in the past. If there are lost sales, well, what happened? Was it because of you that you was it because of a spike in growth? Was it because of your supplier? Was it because of logistics? What happened there? So inventory is critical for us. Having too much inventory is not a good idea. Having to less inventory is not a good idea. We also look at dead inventory. So stuff like that really matters. Number five is, and again, there's a lot more to all that stuff, but we're just touching just a minute and a half on each. Number five is we look at customer base and subscription models, right? To see, do you have repeat customers? Is the same customer coming back and ordering more stuff or is it a one-time deal and then they're not coming back? Uh, subscribe and save is really important. If you have subscribe and save, it really helps value your company higher because we know there's brand loyalty. People are coming back. You've got good quality product. So that's important for us. Again, there's matrices underneath all of this that we talk about, right? The sixth thing that we look at is external sales, right? External sales channel. I know that we were predominantly buying Amazon FBA channels, but if there's no Shopify store, if there's no other ways to market externally, then it's not a big thing. That's why it's so down on our list, but it's something that we definitely look at. If you, if, if there if that doesn't exist, that's fine. That's opportunity for us because we'll bring in a brand company. We'll bring in PPC outside of Amazon, so on and so forth. And the last thing that we look at is new growth potential. Whenever we're buying our companies, our goal is not to just buy and hold. Uh, buy and, and just run it. Anytime we'll buy a company, we're going to bring in at least 10 or 15%, 20% more cash to the table because that allows us to double and triple the product lines. So, you know, depending on how big the brand is, depending on what the product lines are, we have goals that we set with the project managers as to how many new products that they're going to be introduced on a quarterly basis. So that is very important for us to understand what is the new growth potential for that particular product line. Amazing. So that's a great list. So just to quickly recap it, because I think it's a good thing for people to take away mentally. Number one, financial strength. Number two, brand power. And the number of ASINs and revenue per ASIN, really, really important point. Number three, PPC. Uh, number four, lost sales and inventory management. Number five, customer-based subscription. Number six, external sales channels. And number seven, growth potential. Very, very good list to have. And and everyone's got slightly different lists as well. So that's always fascinating to me because uh, we speak to a lot of, of aggregators and, and uh, buyers and brokers, and rightly so, because it's, it's so important to give that big picture perspective, I think, on what we're doing, because otherwise all we're doing is just doing stuff every day and we don't know why. And that's really fatal. I think that's the most fatal thing of all. So just a couple of points then. So what strikes me if we have had to division, do a really super simplistic division between those, some things are, we must have this or we're not buying it. Other things seem to be, actually, if you don't have that, we quite like it because it's an opportunity for us. So can you sort of tell me more about that division? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think the financial strength is critical because you know that that that's where the bo- the bottom line makes a big difference, right? Because the multipliers based on the bottom line, we want to make sure that that strength. So, so number one thing that you gotta have is some type of a decent financial strength and showing some type of positive growth. Now, if you don't have growth, that's fine. It's not the biggest thing, but the financial strength is very important. And two, the most important thing that I look at is brand creation. You have to have a brand. You have it has to be trademarked, which obviously in order for you to get a brand on Amazon, you have to have a trademark. And and in ASINs, diversification of ASINs. Everything else is okay. Everything else can be built. Everything else. But then again, here's the way I look at it. If you don't, if you have one and two, which is financial strength and brand power, that allows us to come in and, and buy the company. Three to seven allows us to rate your company and value it higher. So the idea is the fact that if you've got one and two, that's great. It's your your company is sellable. But your your true evaluation, if you really want to go to that Hawaii and 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 gain that you know retirement or get that big big payload, that will all come back from how well you've managed three to seven. Yeah. So there's some things that will just make it unsellable, at least to you guys. And some things that will add value or detract from the value. That's very, very good, clean differentiation. So I guess, by the way, I know there's a lot of detail you probably go into, and I'm going the opposite way and getting very general. But I think like it's got to be graspable by humans on a podcast, right? So I'm always thinking about that. But I'm sure you have very detailed financial models and things. One other question about the financial strength then. So tell me, how do you qualify that? I mean, so profit, do you have a, like a particular EBITDA or profit? What particular metrics are important to you? And again, like I'm sure you look at 20, but like one or two ones, what, what are the most important metrics? And what do you mean by growth? What what sort of numbers are you looking for there? Sure. That's a great question. So from a EBITDA perspective, right? For us, we call it SDE, which is seller's discretionary earnings, right? Just to simplify it, you've got your revenue, you've got your expenses. As part of your expenses, you have some addbacks, which means that these are some personal expenses that the seller, the buyer will not carry over. And then you subtract the addbacks, which then comes to your SDE, which is a seller discretionary earnings. So we're focused more on the seller discretionary earnings to kind of understand what it is and how it is. Now, we don't look at anything that's around uh, about $100,000 to $150,000 a year. Anything less than that, it becomes, it becomes not as lucrative unless the company has a growth pattern, right? Unless the company has a subscribe and save model. So, so some of those things that come in, and then we, we look to make some exceptions. But about $100,000, $150,000 is what we're looking at from a minimum perspective. Now, the biggest thing that you want to look into is there's certain numbers that we're, we're constantly looking at. In an Amazon business, there are a few major components that take up most of your costs, right? You've got your Amazon fees. Obviously, the FBA fees, you got you to gotta pay the big brother. That's for sure, right? So we're looking at that to be right around the 40, 45, you know, 40% markish, 45% markish, right? So we understand that there's, you know, over, overly paying for inventory, you know, storage and stuff like that. Then we're looking at cost of goods, right? Depending on where you're supposed Supplier is what the product is. You, you know, you're looking at the range between 20, 25, 30, 35, 40% ish, right? And then we're looking at PPC. Um, if you have a stable PPC and it's long range, then you're looking at 10 to 15%, depending on. And those are the three major things that we're actually looking for. If those things are in range and they're about right, in terms of growth, if you're looking at year over year growth of anywhere 10 to 40, 50%, I think that's fairly good, right? The way the model for us is that as you as you sell on Amazon, as you age, if you're doing things the right way, 
And if the market doesn't shut down, like I understand COVID and we're not talking about these, you know, these disasters that come and hit us. I'm talking about in general, the e-commerce is growing. Your brand is growing. Your ASIN is there. Your reviews are growing. If you've got good quality product, then in essence, you should have a natural growth trajectory of 5 to 7%, 10%, right? Unless you've come in and done something a little bit different where you've boosted PPC, you've done a lot more brand outside, you've done something, you should have a higher growth potential. So that's kind of the key things that we're looking at. Brilliant. That's really nice and clear. So the SDE, which is kind of similar to the operating profit, I guess, but it, when it comes to smaller businesses, you're adding back in the the money that the owners slash operators have taken themselves, right? So it's similar to Correct. EBITDA for a bigger business, as I understand. Correct. Cost of goods, nice, nice clear ranges. Brilliant. So now my next question is this. So your other criterion is it has to be diversified amongst the different uh, ACEs. That totally makes sense. You don't want a, a business doing $200,000 a year for one ACE because obviously that gets shut down. The business is shut down. On the other hand, what about the opposite extreme? Because I've been speaking with some business brokers working with some clients trying to get their business sold. And one of them's got two, over 2,000 SKUs. Now that's obviously a bit of an opposite end headache. So is there a sort of level at the opposite end where you would cut off as well? So if you've got a million dollars SDE, but it's from 2,000 SKUs, would that be too much? That's a that's a really good question. So, you know, when, when we were selling in Amazon back in the day, about eight, 10 years ago, when we first started okay, doing this, when we went to China, I was like, okay, I pointed things like, let's buy this and buy this and buy this and buy this. And like, before we knew it, we we're like, man, the more products, the better. It was more awesome. And Eventually, our, our product catalog grew to like 11, 12,000 products. And we're like, this is a lot, right? Like, we, somebody's got to manage this. But, but see, what ends up happening is you've got that 80, 20% rule, right? Like, you will have some of your products that are going to just go through the roof. And then some of the products that are just mediocre products that you're basically just babysitting, restocking, buying a little bit. It's just time consuming and so on and so forth. My advice is what helped us a lot was when we went for our first exit, we actually looked at our entire catalog and we go, all right, what can we clean up? How can we streamline this? Right. So that, in my opinion, that's where it comes to where from a selling. Now, if all 2000 products are selling just absolutely phenomenal, they're, they're great across the board, then, then it is what it is. But if you've got that 80 20 rule where you have certain products that are not doing so well, look, there's no point in introducing a product, but if it doesn't work, sunset it and focus that cash and the time into products that are actually doing well. So that's my thought process on it. I mean, 2000 products, yes, is definitely a lot. But if you're in a situation where most, where 80% of them are like 20% of your revenue, then at that point, you should sunset them. Brilliant. And by the way, this is really, really simple. Like 80-20 rule is, is incredibly famous now. But there's one thing to say it and hear it. It's another thing to do it because so many people with established businesses have a crazily large, particularly they they sold off Amazon before they came on. They have a crazy large catalog. And when you do an 80-20 analysis, it's not even 80-20, normally it's 95-5, right? This is often more brutal. They've got yeah. 10, 20 SKUs out of 400 that are actually carrying the others. And like the other thing you find, I, I love this, but it's kind of horrible as well at the same time when you find it, is that you find some products do more than 100% of the profit. You think, how is that even possible until the penny drops? Ah, 
That's because a lot of products are losing us money and we hadn't even yep. noticed because we got 2,000 yep. of them to manage, right? So yep. I, I really cannot stress enough. Like I'm always trying to beg people to stop selling products, which sounds weird. But as yeah. you said, if you sunset a product that's mediocre, you've got cash available to not go out of stock on your best sellers. And like you said, going out of stock all the time is the biggest killer to sales, right? Oh, and, and again, Amazon will punish you for it. And I'm guessing that you guys are going to look at it and go, why are you going out of stock <laughs> and not be very impressed? So, yeah, that that's I, it, nothing else. Like, I think if we if I keep banging this drum hard enough, then some of my clients will have the courage to shut down half their ASINs and make a lot more profit. And, you know, we'll see how much courage they've got. So let's talk about the other things. And this is the, the things you were talking about when you say, you know, those two things. You've got to have decent financials or it's over. Got to have diversification of ASINs, although maybe not excessive. So these are the things we're talking about, PPC inventory management. Since we're talking about inventory, tell me about that. What's what's your view on how we add value there or, you know, get a better value for the, the company? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of times, you know, when we're asking these the sellers, like, hey, tell us a little bit about your restock process, right? And they're like, well, you know, it de- depends on what side of the bed I wake up. And, you know, if, if it's the right side, I'll do restock today. And if it's the left, I don't know, I'll think about it. And I go, and that is just like blows my mind, right? And some of these companies that we're buying, like, they're worth like two, three million dollars. And we're like, are you serious? And I was like, where's your restock numbers? And they go, oh, it's an Excel sheet. My POs are an Excel sheet. And I go, that's absolutely not cool. Because what ends up happening is when everything's working, it's fine. Anytime there is a twist and turn in your world where, where numbers spike or they drop all of a sudden, You've got no earthly idea because there's no dynamic calculation on restocks. The way we do it is we 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 what we're looking for and what we, what the idea is like there's there's got to be a schedule, right? So let's just say if you've got two thousand products like we had in the past, what we used to do is we put the products on a schedule. Class A products are going the frequency is going to be every two weeks, and then we're going to look at it the first Monday of 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 this first week and the third week, right? So you've got a criteria base as to when you're restocking. If you've got small product base and you've got eight to 10, then you look at it that way. The the very important thing is to understand your lead times, right? So you're looking at your lead, lead time, you look at your safety stock. Again, safety stock and all of that information is based on the number of the, the kind of product you have, the criteria you have. You're selling things that are larger than 18 inches and stuff like that. You're looking at it completely differently. If you're looking at small products that are high value, again, you're looking at it things completely differently. Regardless of how you're looking at it, you got to have a lead time. You've got to have your safety stock. You got to have exactly how long it will take for, our, for, for the products to get shipped into Amazon from your supplier. You add those days together, and now you know exactly what your your, your time ranges that you want to stock for, whether that be 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, or 180 days, doesn't really matter. You got to know that. Once you know that, now you backtrack. You go back and say, all right, in 180 days, what am I going to sell? And then restock for that. So that inventory management is really, really, really important. And the other thing when, when you're looking at this is lost sales. You see, lost sales doesn't really show up on a PL. You know, lost sales doesn't necessarily show up on a, a lot of people's radars. But what we will always look for is look for lost sales in potential when we're looking for it. So when we connected, one of the things we use is obviously we use one of the softwares we like that we seller mobile for for connecting. So whenever we're doing due diligence and we're in the LOI phase, we'll always tell the you know the the seller to say, Hey, please go connect it with seller mobile. When you connect it, we look at every single ASIN. And then over there, we look at the inventory counts. When the inventory counts goes to zero, we know you've lost money there. 
Then we go back and calculate how much you've lost. And we know that the value of the business could have been higher if that loss sales did not exist. Hmm. Does that kind of help? It does. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, I just think restocking, it's not the sexy thing. Everyone wants to talk about brand building because it involves pretty pictures and like, okay, yes, you should. And everyone wants to talk about, you know, uh, launching and marketing because that's the latest hack and everyone's always selling you that. But the truth is, like, I think a lot of us in the masterminds have, have come to the same conclusion. It's like the main objective of the year is don't go out of stock in your bestsellers. It's like that brutally simple. And to the previous point, stop selling mediocre stuff then and refocus your energy and your money. But also, I think that, yeah, the lost sales thing, I'm so glad to hear that you guys really account for that because, again, that should be a wake-up call for people. You are literally devaluing your company, not in some abstract way. Literally, <laughs> these guys are going to offer Look. you less less money, fewer dollars because you went out of stock. And I just love that because I just think it should be an obsession for everyone to get really fantastic at inventory management. And it's a black art. Let's face it. It's really hard. I mean, what are your, what are your sort of systems you've already mentioned? I know we're getting into inventory management now, but I've got to dig into this because I'm convinced it's, it's such an important value builder. You said it's no good having stuff in an Excel spreadsheet because it doesn't, you don't have a dynamic system. Tell, tell me more about that. I've got to dig into that. So again, we use Seller Mobile as our software, right? So the way we do this basically is when you integrate into Amazon, it pulls in all the past history of the particular sales, and then it, it, it does a forecasting for you in the future. Okay. So it tells you the forecast as a little, you know, chart, whatever that you can look at. And then what we do is we, we use our VAs, you know, to do restocking. Once you have a process in place, it's not rocket science, right? It's, it's you, you look at the chart, you look at the trajectories for what the computer is asking for. You don't like what the computer is saying. No problem. Just sit there and overwrite it. Once you override it, it's, it spits out your restock quantities based on your cycle counts. Literally, that's about it. And then you just stick to make sure that the, the restock quantities are there. So for example, you placed an order, you put in the PO, you put it in the system. It tells you that, all right, you've placed a PO, you don't need to restock. If God forbid there's a spike, well, actually, you know, we hope that there's a spike in sales, right? <laughs> if the spike of sales does happen, then the re- when you come back the next week, the restock numbers are up because now all of a sudden the, the trajectory of sales are out, the inventory count is lower. And all of a sudden the computer is saying, hey, by the way, you got to restock another 100 pieces. And you go, wait a minute, I just did a restock last week. Oh, I see. This is why that happened, right? Yeah. And, and now all of a sudden, you know, and you run it. Yeah, great. And and by the way, just that dynamic thing. I mean, you know, Seller Mobile is a good piece of software. Indeed, we're going to talk about it in the next episode. But it probably doesn't have to be super clever to do that. But if it's dynamic, as you say, it's responding in real time to actual data rather than on a spreadsheet where you have to manually update it. Another thing, okay, you may not have 2,000 SKUs, but if you've got 200, that's not a scalable process. It's not a reliable process. And if you put humans in there, including me, obviously, like I'm probably the first person to put... 0.1 instead of 1.0 or something like that suddenly you screwed up everything so yeah it's, it's really great to take the human out of the this picture and less human judgments needed but entering numbers into a spreadsheet not a job for a human that's what software's for right so i'm sure you um, believe that because that's why you created it but yeah i see a lot of that and i see a lot of that with people who are doing several million dollars a year worth and i think this is not you shouldn't be doing this at this stage. That that belongs when you're yeah. doing a few thousand a month, maybe, you know. So yeah, it just it just blows our mind. As a matter of fact, yeah. it was a company that we we just acquired three months ago. And they it was their company was valued at like three million dollars. We held back seven hundred thousand dollars because they ran out of inventory in the top five products. Right. And it's like 
are you serious and, and it wasn't again it, it it wasn't because of anything else but but the, the some people in the manufacturing got sick whatever right but the idea is like the fact that you can't have eighty thousand dollars worth of inventory in amazon and then two hundred fifty thousand dollars on the boat it's it just doesn't work. So we said, you know what? That's fine. We're going to hold back $700,000. And if the sales come back to normal in 12 months, we'll pay it back. Otherwise, we won't. But it's it's so sad to see that because if they only had inventory, there wouldn't have been a slump. Yeah. And, you know, it can be hard dealing with inventory. But I guess, I, again, I just want to forgive me, my, my pet peeve. If you stop selling the mediocre products, you'll have more cash. You can buy six months worth of stock for the best sellers because if it's 20, even in 2021, six months worth might actually be six days. It's kind of insane what happens, right? I was speaking to a guy the other day. He'd been in one of the masterminds and he's potentially selling a business. And we spoke about one of his products. He said, yeah, we ordered six months worth of stock and it lasted for two weeks. Yeah. And then they were out of stock for seven months because they couldn't get it. This is this is the 2020 story, right? This is the tragedy yeah. of great products as they sell so well, you can't get them. But even so, yeah, it's hard to anticipate anything that crazy. But you can anticipate that three months worth, you know, six months worth actually goes in two months. That is a humanly possible, conceivable thing, right? And yeah. I just, again, I can't emphasize enough. If, if you're selling something on the basis of training 12 months EBITDA or SDE, it's not rocket science. And if you run out of stock on your best sellers, that's going to be cratering compared to what it could be. So yeah. like, there you go. And I, we've, I've banged that drum enough. But yeah, I, I love the fact that you're, you actually assess that in a rigorous way because I've not heard yeah. that from other people, which is kind of surprising. I would really want to know how people's inventory management is because it's the hardest thing to get. That's yeah. the number one thing I'd want to know. But there you go. So you guys obviously think the same way. Let's tell me. Let's let's look at some slightly more sexy things because people get upset talking about inventory and out of stock. But it is important. Tell me more about the customer base and subscription model. A lot of um, Amazon sellers don't have a subscription type model. H yeah. How vital is that for adding value to a company these days? The way we look at it, it's obviously, I wouldn't rank that at the very top one or two, but it's actually starting to get more and more important because as people are going more towards the e-commerce world and, and you know they're more reliant on marketplaces, the subscribe and save model just allows you to become so much more powerful uh, when it's coming to the multiplier, right? Because as soon as as soon as you have a subscribership model, you are, and it's, it's a growing model, right? You automatically know from a seller's perspective, ten man, that's like almost guaranteed sales for the most part. Unless you do something really bad and you again run out of stock, right? You you will be getting those sales. So you know if even if you have like ten percent, fifteen percent of your you know customers coming through subscribe and save. That's important. So if you haven't, if, if I tell, you know, Amazon, you know, owners, all the FBA owners all the time that look, if you haven't looked at it and if you haven't turned it on and if you haven't really even messed around with it, I highly recommend that you do because you might realize that, hey, this thing is working better than I thought it would be working or it might not work. Either way, you'll at least know what it is, right? Not having the subscribe and save option doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that's great to hear. And that sounds like a potentially easy win that could become actually a strategy level thing if, if it takes off. It's one of those things. Sometimes you try stuff, it works. You go, hmm, those, uh, I don't know, toothpaste that we were selling last month, everyone's subscribing and saving. That's kind of getting a good yep. renewal rate. Why don't we find more products that we can subscribe and save? So it becomes more of a sort of driver of your product selection criteria, that sort of thing, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah I, as you say, there is so many, the, the nice thing about working with Amazon sellers, they're so busy that I find, you know, consulting or in the masterminds or, some, you know, someone like yourself, obviously fantastically placed to have so much knowledge. It's not hard to find wins because there is so much going on. People just neglect little things. 
but it's really interesting to hear about subscribe and save i think i've got a couple of clients who could probably just turn it on who aren't currently doing that i can immediately think of some people i'm sure that people listening may be having an aha moment i hope so that would be an amazing thing so there's loads of other things here what out of the other things i guess you you're a pretty disciplined guy and you put things in rank order for a reason what are the other things that really add value the most easily would you say out of all these other things so you've got the top two that are the obligatory the three to seven that are the value adders which is the other most powerful lever to pull to add value so so, so here's here's where we see the biggest thing where sellers can do to add value. It's, I I think this is the biggest thing that they can do in in terms of adding value to their company. Okay, it's like when you first start selling on Amazon, you have small wins, right? You make fifteen hundred bucks, thousand, two thousand bucks, three thousand, four thousand, five thousand bucks a month. At that point, a lot of times we'll see you know sellers starting to spend money on external things, right? Like getting nice cars or getting an apartment and houses and stuff like that. And and I think the problem with that is that I, I think that if people can, I, I I get like whatever the YOLO concept, you only live once, whatever, right? But the idea isn't that, right? You want to give it, you want to give it at least a few years and and, and and put together that cash flow. The reason why that's so important is because when you start selling on Amazon and you get success, right? We see these guys get to a certain point and they go, man, I'm making $20,000 a month, man, that's great. I'll just sell my company for whatever X, Y, and Z million bucks, something like that. And I go, man, if you could have only saved 90% of that money for a year, you know, you would have had $100,000 in an account, which then you could use to buy other businesses or go out and there's a hundred lending platforms right now that are willing to give you money, right? Use that money and diversify your portfolio. There's so many times we'll see like these great products, they have no variations, right? And so it's like, if you know one product did really well for you and is ranking and you're selling, why don't you add a few more variations? Because over time, you're, you're going to gain value out of them. Those variations might sell, people might review. And now you've got Again, variations being in the policy of Amazon. <laughs> Don't be going around dropping everything as a variation, right? You get your account shut down at that point. But if you have variations that you can look at, maybe color variations or size variations or quantity vari- variations, right? You can then actually build your portfolio. So, so the biggest thing is like when you make money, don't keep some of it aside and have a strategic cash flow plan for growing your product lines because that's so critical in my in my opinion so brilliant yeah this is a really great 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 advice and you know there's two pretty simple things one keep your money in your business and the other one is look at how you can grow your portfolio like not rocket science like variations as you said it's pretty simple but i mean people can overlook the power of that so easily like a friend of mine was doing i guess in dollar equivalent terms two million dollars a year and it was basically 200 variations on the same product now they were nicely done and he'd lived in China and sourced that there. So he knew his business. It wasn't just like I'm saying, hey, newbies, go and do this thing. But I mean, it, it was literally that basic. Now, of course, within terms of service, yeah, you wouldn't literally have one listed with two and variations. That would be a ridiculous consumer experience. Yeah. But more or less, that's what he had across, you know, whatever number of listings. That was a great business. I mean, okay, you know, it's very concentrated. <laughs> that might be a bit extreme for some people, but that's an example of how how basic it can be. Like other people, they sold like six variations of swimming goggles or something, and that was a tiny business they sold back in the day. And yeah, it's easy to overlook how specific you can get on Amazon and call it a business, right? We yeah. don't have to recreate, you know, JCPenney's or Macy's or whatever 
You don't have to yeah. have a stupidly wide variety of products. That's just not how it seems to work. So, yeah, great stuff. Listen, we could talk all day. I guess we better, you know, get on to talking about Seller Mobile in a minute and also let you get back to your, your life. But obviously, you have massive insights and really common sense stuff as well. So if people want to get in touch with you at Umbrella Fund, how do they go about contacting you? I mean, it's simple. You go just go to UmbrellaFund.com and you just fill out the contact form. There's a valuation, express valuation form as well, if you want to put it in there. And and, and the, the thing that I just definitely want to say is that, look, if you're selling, contact us. If you're not selling, you just want advice, contact us. It's not a problem. We don't charge you. We're not a consulting company. You know, if you want to get on on the calendar for, for 30 minutes to an hour and just generally talk about how to scale companies, what you have in mind, you know, we're always available. The reason why we like to pitch that, because when we were growing, we had mentors. Uh, we had people that gave us advice 10, 15 years ago when we, we were lost. We didn't know what to do. My dad gave me my first $5,000 and said, all right, here, do something with this. Right. So the idea is like we were given that opportunity. And so, you know, it's great that we would love to give that opportunity back. And even if you're, again, not selling right now, it doesn't matter. It's always good to get your ducks in a row. You want to get things streamlined. So Reach out if you are you're growing, you've got some momentum, and and will definitely help. Excellent, that's a very generous offer. I guess you're paying forwards what you receive. That's really nice that you have that that attitude. I like it. The funny thing I would say about the business community, it, it'd be easy to assume, and I think people do from outside of it. That my background is musicians. That that business people are very mean spirited and want to get paid for everything. My experience is actually some really powerful people are incredibly generous with their time, and so you're in that tradition which is lovely to hear so ned fantastic stuff really like some some real powerful takeaways for me nice and clear and simple as well and really great stuff so thank you so much for coming on the show thank you sir i appreciate it thanks so much for listening to the 10k collective podcast part of the family of amazing fba podcasts Today's episode is sponsored by the new e-commerce podcast, The E-Commerce Leader. The podcast is hosted by yours truly and Jason Miles, multi-million dollar Shopify owner and Unimi's highest rated e-commerce instructor. If you're the owner of a thriving online business and you want to become the best e-commerce leader you can be, it's got your name on it. For free guides and mini courses on many topics, go to www.theecommerceleader.com.